Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? By now, you know that this is a show about climate change. And by now, you know that we start from the premise that climate change is real. But for decades, there's been a persistent tale told by others. Climate change isn't real, or humans aren't to blame, or the need to address emissions isn't urgent. Disinformation and denial is nothing new in climate discussions. But it is getting fresh attention in Canada, thanks to reports commissioned by the Alberta government's inquiry into alleged anti-energy campaigns. Reports experts said were based on junk climate denial science, bizarre conspiracy theories, and oil industry propaganda. These are very clearly individuals who have been identified by climate scientists as engaging in a form of climate science denial. It's almost comedic. Now you're going out and spending tens of thousands of dollars on reports that question even the basic consensus of climate science. One of the reports also targets individual academics, environmental groups, universities, and journalism organizations as being part of a conspiracy to destroy Alberta's oil industry. So, if this is still happening today, generated with public dollars, what's the solution? Ignore it? Challenge it? Talk about it? Sure. Let's talk about it right here, right now. We'll start the show with the reports themselves, commissioned and paid for by the Alberta Inquiry. There are three looking at foreign funding of opposition to oil and gas, but two in particular dive into climate science, and they've been described by Martin Olshinsky as textbook climate denialism in a response he made to the commission last month. Martin Olshinsky is an associate professor of law at the University of Calgary, and he joins me now. Hello. Hello. You sought and were granted standing with this Alberta inquiry that's looking into so-called anti-energy campaigns and the influence of foreign money on those campaigns. Why did you want to get involved? Yeah, so I, I've been observing the inquiry uh, for since its inception, and, and I've had concerns with it uh, from the beginning. Um, there were lots of concerns with the terms of reference, the, this, the, this language around anti-Albertan energy campaigns. Uh, so I was involved uh, in the first phase, uh, made a submission to the commissioner, and then saw very clearly that over time, uh, because of the terms of reference, it was very clear that groups that we would expect maybe to participate in this inquiry were genuinely concerned that they shouldn't, right, and probably receive legal advice that they shouldn't. And then I was concerned then that some of the information that they might have otherwise provided about their activities, their concern for climate change, for instance, um, that that wouldn't be included in, in the commissioner's record. Also, as, as someone who has been critical of the oil and gas industry in the province, I myself have been accused at times of being foreign funded. And so I had also a very direct, I think, interest in making sure that the commissioner had as much impartial information and expert based information as possible in conducting his inquiry, because then once it's in front of him, he has to consider it. Whereas if it weren't in front of him, there was a very real risk that he wouldn't have to consider it and the report would be worse for it. Let me ask you the question then. Have you been foreign funded? 
No, I haven't been foreign funded. I've supported, you know, as, uh, as someone who's been an environmental law professor for 15 years and, and who has seen the case law in our country and in our province develop over time, um, I've supported various ENGOs myself, but I've never been funded by them, no. Let's talk about the, about these reports. Um, one of the reports cost the inquiry $28,000 or the Alberta taxpayer $28,000. Another cost about $6,000. You have gone through both of them in some detail. Can you quickly walk us through what these reports each set out to do? It, it seemed like on their face what they set out to do was to provide an alternative explanation for why uh, environmental organizations might be opposed to oil and gas in Alberta, right? And so the very obvious reason is that they were concerned about climate change. And the fact is that compared to other jurisdictions around the world, Alberta's oil and gas, and in particular the oil sands, are amongst, you know, based on available evidence, they are amongst the most GHG intensive. And so it's not surprising that these groups concerned for climate change would focus on these sources. But what these reports then try to do is to say that climate change actually is not real. You know, essentially one, one sort of suggests that it is a pretext uh, for essentially imposing a form of material poverty to overthrow capitalism and replace it with a socialist technocratic sort of society. And, and that all sounds very extreme. That is essentially the thesis of, of the one report, the Nemeth report. Dr. Cooper, his sort of approach is, is to essentially to undermine the severity. You know, he'll at various times sort of suggest that this has been overblown that there's actually no consensus, that there's growing pushback against the consensus of climate change. And of course, none of that is true. Uh, the Nemeth report in particular essentially says that climate change, like other environmental crises before, it was is just a pretext for this international movement to overthrow capitalism. Is that why you use the phrase textbook climate denialism? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was essentially part of what's interesting with kind of this kind of denialist tactics is, is that it has all the trappings of what appears to be rigorous research, right? And so Dr. Nemeth's report is very well cited, or appears to be, there's voluminous footnotes. But when you start to look at the sources, and when you start to look at the individuals that she's citing, these are very clearly individuals who have been identified in by climate scientists as engaging in a form of sort of climate science denial. And, and that was one of the points that I made, and I, and I want to make this clear, of course, too. I myself, I, I have a background in science, and I've worked with and collaborated with conservation scientists, but I don't claim either to be a climate scientist. And so what I had said to the commissioner in my comments on these reports was that instead of engaging these two individuals who have no climate science training, that he should engage trained climate scientists to talk about these issues and get a, a more objective and expert-based opinion. Well, why, why, though, do you think that these reports in particular are problematic at a public inquiry? Well, so, you know, so a public inquiry is essentially, it's, it's not quite a judicial process. It's not bound by the same rules of court. But at the same time, there are rules, sort of procedural fairness and substantive rationality. Um, evidence that can be relied on should generally be credible. And, and these reports don't meet those standards, even those basic, basic standards. And so I, I wanted to alert him to that very real problem. This is not the kind of thing that he can rely on um, when coming to any kind of determinations. Now, he has since clarified that he doesn't intend to rely on these reports uh, for any findings of fact, um, and that, in fact, he won't be making any determinations with respect to climate science, um, which, again, is, it's, it's hard to understand then why he sought commentary. Um, and, and in addition to these commission reports, he also referred uh, us participants to individuals who are known uh, to engage in essentially a form of climate denial, um, climate science denialism. And so I don't know where the commissioner is going to go with them now, 
Right, and but but as you said, the the, the commissioner um, is is has stated he's not considering the science of climate change to be part of his mandate. Now I should tell you, we asked to interview him, and we're told he's not speaking to the media while the inquiry is underway. We also know that Jason Kenney isn't commenting on the inquiry while it while it is underway. So that we that you are left with really only speculation at this point. Um, but I wonder, once you remove the climate denial aspects from these reports. What is the argument that a reader is left with? Well, and that's it. And that's a great question. I mean, what you're left with afterwards is um, essentially you see, in my view anyways, a, a fairly rational and predictable response to a global environmental problem. So initially that problem is identified by scientists and they raise the alarm. And it takes some time for societies to sort of wrap their minds around that. You can think about tobacco smoking. I always like to draw the analogy back to tobacco. It took decades for people in Canada, United States to start accepting the risks that were right in front of them, you know, Surgeon General warnings, all these things. So, so it starts with the scientific community, then it grows, I think, to civil society, then eventually it does start to make its way into government, international organizations, corporations, you know, and so then when you remove the sort of idea that this is just bogus science, and it's not real, what the Nemeth report, for instance, catalogs is, you know, a, a growing international movement, sure, to deal with a very international global problem, which is climate change. The inquiries now, the remit now, the stated remit is to look into um, whether there is foreign funding um, in in these kind of, as they call it, anti-Alberta um, campaigns. Why shouldn't the government have that kind of inquiry? Is there a problem with that in and of itself? Well, I mean, I guess the part that gives it away, of course, is that there's clearly foreign funding going on in, in various contexts, you know, outside of even this environmental context. We know that the Mutart Foundation in Edmonton sort of provided some information and said, you know, out of 10 sectors in the province of Alberta, environmental organizations are actually 10th, that, that it's actually religious organizations, for instance, that receive more foreign funding than they do. So, so there's, there's that aspect, the fact that they're only looking at the, the environmental side of the debate and not looking at also any foreign funding on the pro-oil side. And of course, the irony there, the third commission report was prepared by an organization called Energy in Depth which is actually an American, part of the American Petroleum Institute. And so they were paid $50,000 U.S. to prepare a report for this public inquiry into foreign funding. So, so you know, I, I don't disagree. I, there could have been. And again, I'll say that my position is that when you're dealing with a global environmental problem, and no one should be surprised that there is going to be international funding put forward towards those issues and those campaigns. And I don't think so long as that is um, above board and done in accordance with, you know, accounting laws and, and charity laws, you know, I think that, that we would expect that to be the case. But even if you felt like that, Albertans deserve to see the, the whole picture at least and, and, and to see the forest from the trees of these individual groups. The fact that you're just focusing on one side of the story and you're doing it in such an obviously inflammatory way, right? Um, Anti-Albertan, you know, the strong sort of language of othering um, to sort of suggest that there's something unpatriotic about being concerned about oil and gas development in the province when former Premier Lockheed expressed concerns in the early 2000s and mid-2000s about the scale and pace of oil sands development. Expert panels expressed concern that the regulatory capacity of the government had been exceeded by the scope and pace of development. The Premier never distinguishes between 10% or 15% or 50%. We don't know. It's any, it appears to be that any amount of money somehow delegitimizes these groups. And I just think that that's clearly doesn't reflect the reality of a charitable giving in the, in, in especially in these kind of international contexts. And, and it surely unnecessarily 
uh, created tension and antagonism against these groups in particular, which from a legal perspective, from an administrative law perspective, raises concerns, I think, about fairness and bias. This is um, an Alberta issue, but, but do, do you think it should matter to other Canadians? I mean, I, I think it matters in, in this sense that, you know, we are in a new era and, and in two ways. We saw on January 6th, conspiracy theories and alternative facts and alternative realities, how toxic they can be for our democratic discourse. And so I think that we all need to be much more vigilant, I think, about calling that out and making sure that we don't allow it to get out of hand. It's also relevant in the context of the new Biden administration in the United States, clearly has taken some bold initial steps towards dealing with climate change, mitigating uh, the effects of climate change, electrifying the transportation sector. And, so, and of course, the big policy decision that we're all aware of here in Alberta is the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. And so in that context, of course, you have the premier trying to get the president's attention, trying to get the prime minister's attention, claiming to be a climate leader, while at the same time, essentially running this inquiry targeting environmentalists. I don't think that those two things are consistent. I think that there's a fundamental problem there of credibility. And the premier will have that problem in trying to sell Alberta as a responsible producer. And if he's demanding similarly a spot at the table in discussions about climate policy, I think that it's important that everybody understands just exactly what Alberta's policies are. Martin Olszewski, thank you very much. You're very welcome. As I mentioned, we requested an interview with the commissioner of this inquiry, Steve Allen. We were told he's not talking to the media while the inquiry is underway and that he doesn't consider climate change to be part of his mandate. Now, remember what Martin Olszewski said about those two reports. What these reports then try to do is to say that climate change actually is not real, that this has been overblown, that there's actually no consensus, that there's growing pushback against the consensus of climate change. And of course, none of that is true. And there is no doubt about it. The planet is warming. But if you find yourself faced with climate disinformation, it's worth remembering the evidence points to us humans as the undeniable culprit. My name is Simon Donner. I'm a climate scientist and professor at the University of British Columbia. One of the key things to understand is that climate science isn't really a separate branch of science from anything else. So people who studied climate science, like myself, you study physics and chemistry. And, and the case for humans influencing the climate comes from basic physics and chemistry. And so it's it comes from experiments that began over 200 years ago, calculations that have been done over many, many decades and data that's been collected over a long period of time. So this isn't something that, you know, Al Gore cooked up for a documentary 20 years ago. This is really just physics and chemistry. And if we were wrong about the conclusion that humans are driving the climate, then like so many principles of physics and chemistry would also have to be wrong. We'd pretty much have to just set fire at all the world's science textbooks. What the evidence shows us is that having greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is the reason the planet's warm enough that we actually can have life on the surface. And if we add more of those greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, like carbon dioxide, the planet's going to get even warmer. 
And if we look at the pattern of how the planet's warmed over time, and I don't just mean the fact that it's warmed overall, but what parts of the planet have warmed, that the Arctic's warming faster, that it's warming faster at night than during the day, and that the lower atmosphere is warming and not the upper atmosphere is warming. Those are like fingerprints, right? So if we were, say, on the TV show CSI, you know, you'd have the crime scene lab in here trying to look for evidence for who was responsible. And what we find is that humans have been pretty sloppy criminals. Our fingerprints are all over the climate system and such that it's really the only logical explanation for how the climate could be warming the way it is, is if humans are responsible through greenhouse gases. In spite of everything we just said, there is no question that disinformation does do what it's supposed to do. It does sway some people who then deny climate change exists. John Cross, a lifelong rancher in Alberta, used to be one of those people. Not anymore. He is ready to tell the skeptics and doubters it's real, no matter the consequences for him. Well, as you get older, you get a, a little thicker hide and you don't quite care as much <laughs> of what other people think. And it's a good thing for me to speak out now. And because it's not as rigid as thinking about climate change. And uh, so the conversations actually are much easier now. But back up a few decades to when Cross was a young man working the ranch with his dad. He went to a public talk along with a bunch of other ranchers delivered by a geography professor who Cross says told them what they wanted to hear. I remember that carbon wasn't a problem and that we're not going to have a global warming problem. And especially agriculture was not either part of the problem or part of the solution. And do you remember how it was received by the people there? Uh, his message was warmly received because of the environment of in the industry of people feeling that you know sort of under attack by the public and especially environmentalists. So you embraced it as well? Correct. Yes. Then Cross started noticing things, how the ranch was affected by chemicals, how the weather was changing. But it was a tragic accident that made him really think deeply about the way they were running the ranch. One particular event was my father spilled uh, a chemical to treat uh, lice on cattle on himself, and then it caused him to have a stroke that I actually witnessed. He survived the stroke, but he was changed after that. Cross started reading the science and came to understand how carbon emissions were changing the weather, for the worse around where he lives. Now he's in his 50s and he picks and chooses how and when he talks about what he's learned. I'm curious, though, how do you talk to other farmers about the science of climate change? <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> like, sometimes it's just not worth bringing it up. I don't need to change anybody's mind. At other times in my life, I thought I did. But I have tr enough trouble dealing with what is inside my own fences, let alone what's outside. So, But when John Cross finds an opening, he'll have those conversations, ones he believes are needed now more than ever. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
One-on-one -on -one conversations can make a difference, but as seas rise, ancient glaciers melt, and wildfires spread further and burn longer, my next two guests say the media must do more when it comes to reporting on the climate crisis and the science behind it. Genevieve Gunther is the founder and director of a volunteer organization called End Climate Silence. She's a climate activist and a part-time lecturer at the New School in New York. Sean Holman is an associate professor of journalism at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Sean Holman, Genevieve Gunther, hello. 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 Um, I, I just start with you, Sean. How journalists report on climate change can be kind of inside baseball. <laughs> so why do you think that it matters to the public? It can seem like inside baseball, but I think it's vitally important. And that's because our democracy, our system of government, is based on the idea that people are going to be making informed, empathetic, and rational decisions using truthful information. And the source of much of that truthful information is news media. So if we get coverage of climate change wrong, if we don't properly characterize the threat that climate change poses to our species as well as many other species on this planet, then we can't possibly expect citizens to be making good decisions about what really is the most pressing problem of our time. Genevieve, same question to you. From our perspective, we think that the broadcast news media in America in particular, but you know, still the mainstream news media with some key exceptions is not doing a good enough job actually explaining the science to viewers, to news consumers. They're not explaining the stakes of the science and mostly they're failing to connect the dots between the climate crisis and the stories that they're already reporting about its effects. So again and again, we have documented that um, especially the broadcast news will report on extreme weather, hurricanes, floods, wildfires and mention the ways in which the climate crisis is exacerbating those extreme weather events, but they will never specifically and explicitly say that it is the climate crisis that is making these, these weather events more extreme. So for our perspective, um, in fact, the vast majority of news media coverage of the climate crisis actually displays a kind of climate silence. It's almost as if it's covering up the climate crisis. And for us, that's actually a form of climate denial. So that's what we're trying to work to end, that kind of silence, which is a in form of implicatory denial. Sean, can we go actually back in time a little bit? I want to talk to you about whether intentionally or not um, how has the field of journalism historically contributed to skepticism or, or even outright dismissal of climate change? Yeah. Well, we often talk about what's known as false equivalency. So there was uh, a long period, and to a certain extent, that period still continues, where the news media felt an obligation to actually include those who denied the reality of climate change as part of their coverage uh, of that particular issue. So the end result of that was it created, as the term implies this false equivalency between the scientific fact and this denial of evidence that has really been so pernicious in our society. And in fact, there actually has been 
other news media organizations that have taken a much harder line when it comes to platforming those kind of factually incorrect views. For example, the Los Angeles Times actually decided that it would stop publishing letters to the editor that denied climate change. And I think that's something that the Canadian news media really seriously needs to consider. We should not be in the business of spreading misinformation and disinformation about the most pressing problem of our time when we know, we know that that information is incorrect. Yes, I'd just like to jump in here, if I may, and add that this false equivalence is the result, in part, of an organized campaign by fossil fuel interests that pressured news organizations to include, quote unquote, skeptical voices in their coverage in order that they not seem to display a kind of political bias, because this was all part of a strategy that really got going in 2009 after the collapse of the Copenhagen talks, that climate change was going to be created as a political issue and not a physical phenomenon that science happened to discover first. So this pressure that outside political groups put on news media organizations was part of the strategy to polarize the issue and to create a kind of sense of doubt among the public. And to this day, uh, polling by Yale University shows that only 21% of Americans know that the scientific consensus that climate change is real, caused by humans, and is going to be bad is about 21%, even in 2021. And let, let me hit you up with a, with a false equivalence uh, counterargument that, that, mm -hmm. that it, we live in a world of free speech that everyone should be allowed to voice their views. What is the damage done if these voices are heard? So actually, it's not simply a question about allowing people to express their political opinions. We Anyone can express any kind of political opinion they want about how we're going to tackle this crisis, I think. But you can't, that's different than allowing them to spread um, fact-based lies or propaganda yeah. that propagate false beliefs among news media consumers. Sean, I, I have a feeling you're wanting to jump in there again. <laughs> yeah, no, that, no, that's 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 absolutely right. I mean, you know, the news media is not a common carrier. In other words, we don't have an obligation to simply broadcast everything that everyone says or print everything that everyone says. You know, climate change is caused by human activity, but it is also being caused by this post-truth era that we find ourselves living in. In many ways, it's a post-truth phenomenon. Um, it is the result of us not listening and not paying attention to the evidence and not acting on the evidence. And the news media has a share of but, the blame for uh, for that situation. But what you're raising also raises the question of the role that social media play. And, and mm -hmm. journalists cannot control what gets put around social media. So why are journalists supposed to be the, the sole gatekeepers of, of what is true and what is correct when it comes to climate change? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the challenge is, is that journalists were there at the beginning. 
I mean, this uh, denialism that we're seeing around climate change existed before the social media era got into full swing. So we provided, right, in a lot of ways, unwittingly, it's, it's not as if we necessarily intended to do this, but the foundation. Um, for the denialism that exists today. So we do bear some historic responsibility for this. And we still do have among the largest mass megaphones in society. Um, So yes, our power is diminished as a result of social media, but we still do have an enormous ability to influence public opinion and change public opinion by the information that we present, and that information should be truthful so people can make good decisions. Genevieve, same question to you, and also what role can journalism play to combat disinformation more broadly? Well, I think that it's important to remember that social media is a series of platforms where people circulate content and circulate journalism and comment on it and share it and amplify certain voices and repress other voices. So, I mean, I think it's more useful to think of social media as a kind of public sphere held in private hands than to think of it as itself a media outlet. Because I don't think that social media can really decide or kind of create a sphere of legitimacy in the way that the mainstream media can, the flagship newspapers, the broadcast news channels. I think that there is a way in which the mainstream news media kind of performatively decides what the bounds of legitimate discourse is. So if they decide that climate denial is a legitimate discourse, then that gives whatever disinformation being circulated on social media a kind of legitimacy and power it wouldn't have if the news media hadn't actually protected the sphere of truth better. and explained that if you're going to have a climate skeptic on your Sunday talk show, for example, you really would need not just a scientist to counter that skeptic, you would need 99 scientists or 99.99 scientists to weight the evidence properly. How do we gauge or measure what a good and thorough climate reporting looks like? Is there a standard for what the coverage looks like? That's a really good question. We don't actually have a really good standard right now. So in the absence of that standard, what I think we should actually fall back on is journalistic principles. What we would expect in terms of good professional practice uh, by a journalist. So um, taking that into account, um, we should, as members of the news media, ensure that we are prioritizing news items in order of their importance um, to the world and to our audiences. And by that standard, climate change should be um, the top story in the world today. Um, There is no phenomena that is going to more profoundly impact the future of this planet than that particular phenomena. And we should also be contextualizing coverage uh, in a way that we would expect for any other kind of coverage. We should be providing the maximum amount of information so that our audiences can better understand the world around them. So really, I think it's just about relying on good journalistic practice 
prioritizing items in accordance with their newsworthiness. And climate change is extraordinarily newsworthy. Genevieve? From my perspective, I think that good climate journalism right now needs to see climate as emerging in every story that it tells, in politics, in energy, in immigration, even in food and the arts. This is something that is emerging everywhere. And there is nothing we can do on this planet that sort of separates us from our climate. And so that is a fact that needs to start being apparent in our reporting too. So climate needs to be not just one beat or one kind of story. It needs to be threaded throughout every story that we tell now. So we've talked about journalism, we've touched on social media, but I want to get you both to talk to me about what role do people themselves play in the climate change conversation? Sean? A really important role, um, because we do live in a democracy, at least <laughs> hopefully still. So people have an enormous uh, amount of power uh, when it comes to who is elected and when it comes to the purchasing decisions that they make. And they should be exercising that power on a daily basis when it comes to climate change and when it comes to making positive changes when it comes to climate change. And the reason that is, is not just because it's good for climate change, but because people also need to feel that they have a sense of control and certainty about this time that we're living in, live in such a time of profound uncertainty and lack of control. And, and by providing that information on how people can take personal control and political control of this problem, we'll actually be really doing the public a great service and fulfilling our role as members of the news media. Last word to you, Genevieve. It's still awkward. It's still uncomfortable to think and talk about climate change. And we really need to break the silence and normalize it. So I would recommend to all the people who are listening right now to connect with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Connect from your values, the things that you have in common, and talk about how those things are threatened by climate change. Talk about your feelings about it. Try to name and shame and people who are blocking the energy transition, politicians, business people, people in the media. These people need to be encouraged to change and it's people power who can do that. But also talk about the way you want your lives to improve because taking climate action can be an incredible moment to address issues like public health and income inequality and education and all of these things that research shows makes our lives healthier, happier, and more fulfilling. And so we can talk about our fear of climate change, our outrage against the people who are blocking the solutions, but also our desire to have a better world for ourselves and our children. I really think that is the most impactful thing that people can do in their daily lives. It has been an interesting discussion. I thank both of you for the time. Thank you so very much. Thank you much. so much for having us. Sean Holman is an associate professor of journalism at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Genevieve Gunther is the founder and director of End Climate Silence, a volunteer organization that monitors the media for climate change coverage. That does it for us this week. 
If you haven't given us a review, please do and tell a friend because it helps move the climate conversation forward. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Jennifer Van Everett, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.